Today we have the pleasure of speaking with David Whitcomb and Crystal Anderson from the popular open finance platform MX. David is the VP of product at MX and he has over 15 years of experience in the financial service industry and he holds a master's degree in management of IT from the University of Virginia. Crystal is the VP of product management at MX. She has a nearly 20-year career leading financial product organizations, and she has a bachelor's degree in journalism and completed the master's program in speech communication at the University of Central Missouri. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, your website is super easy. It's mx.com. So if anybody's following along um, at home and wants to check it out, you can go there. But can you just start by telling me uh, what is MX? What's it do? Who's it for? What's the problem you're solving? Yeah. So MX is an open finance company. I'll start with why we exist. And David, maybe you can share what we do. Our mission is really to empower the world to be financially strong. And what that means, I think there's two components to that mission statement, empowerment, which uh, I'll have David talk a bit about, and then there's the financial strength. And to us, it really means about creating the state of financial well-being, creating experiences, um, enabling experiences that create this, this state of financial well-being. And to us, financial strength means that we are creating experiences and opportunities for someone to be resilient in the face of a financial shock. And we do that by thinking about all of the things that really drive that financial wellness. They're spending. Are we enabling things like allowing them to pay their bills on time and in full and spending less than they make? From a savings perspective, are they saving and do they have enough to cover living expenses? And then from a borrowing perspective, is their credit score such that they have access to affordable credit and could they, could they um, afford an emergency, as an example? And we think about those things as we build our experiences and everything we do is really to, to that end to make sure that we're driving financial strength. Yeah, and I think if I, to add to that story, I think there's two underlying themes and that that kind of guide how we build and what we build. And and the first is access and the second is action. So if when we talk about open finance, we can't talk about it without talking about how open finance is powering access to a user's financial data. Uh, I think if we look back at the history of MX, one of the first things we ran into is we were trying to build tools to, to help people get financially strong is people couldn't get to their data. Uh, We were forging relationships with banks and credit unions and helping embed the tools and the data they had captive in their own, their own organizations, but getting other, other data in from other banks was a huge challenge. So access is one of the biggest pieces and most important pieces of open finance and its growth in the U S and Canada right now, because more and more people can actually access their data as banks are turning on APIs and creating more secure services to do that. Um, I think the second piece of after access is that action. It's a lot of what Crystal talked about because you can't take action on data if it's bad data. And so MX has a has over a decade of taking that data and cleansing it, classifying it, enhancing it, so that when it's presented in a UX, when it's presented for assessment, when it's presented as account numbers and routing numbers to power a payment, it's usable because it's clean, it's accurate, it's been vetted and run through ecosystems that say yes. This is what it actually is. It's not just not this chevron with a bunch of garbly 
letters afterwards. It's just Chevron. You get a logo with it. You know what it is naturally as a result. So uh, MX, again, as we build, we think about the access and then we think about how we make it actionable when we build. Yeah. Uh, we're going to hopefully talk a lot more about open finance and what that means and the consequences. But to give the audience a little bit of kind of context, can you walk through a few examples of the kinds of connections and data that you're, um, you're enabling on the platform? Like, what am I actually connecting? Sure. So uh, one of the most simple use cases that a lot of people have experienced if you're connecting, uh, your, if you want to make your mortgage payment, you may log into your mortgage, your mortgage processor's system, and if you need to pay from a bank that's not the holder of the mortgage, you have to connect your accounts via ACH. Most people don't have their account numbers and routing numbers memorized, so it's not easy just to sit down and type those out. And even if you just type them out, it doesn't guarantee that those are yours. And so, what open Finance allows you to do is log in as yourself to your bank account that you want to use the money you want to use money from. The open finance company goes out, grabs the account number and routing number, often grabs data saying who asking the question, who owns the account. So if it's David Whitcomb, it's validating, yes, this is David Whitcomb's account that's funding it. And then so allows that mortgage company to go collect the payment to make that mortgage payment. That's one of the most simple use cases that uh, that that we power on a regular basis today. Crystal, do you want to take another one? Yeah, I would say um, it's also about access to all of your financial data. So that use case, but also we know that people expect their bank or financial institution to provide those personalized experiences. They expect to have access to their data so that they can see their full financial picture. And that's what we're, we're building. We're building um, an environment in which you own your data, you give permission or to have to your bank or financial institution to have access to that and you control where it's shared, and you do that because you fully expect that you should be able to do the things that David said. You should be able to get a personalized experience with insights that are in your best interest because it, it, it is your data. I mean, it, it really comes down to that from a user perspective. Yeah, it's very relatable. I've done that with my mortgage. I've logged in and been like, oh gosh, I, I want to pay from over here this month, and it's a pain. It's very easy to understand, and it's very easy for me to to feel like I'm one person, but every company treats me differently. And so I have all these different logins and it's confusion and I can't get a sense of my own financial well-being. Am I, am I strong? Am I, am I weak? Where's all the money? It's in, it's so it's almost overwhelming. And I've been kind of, instead of being empowered, it's made things worse to have lots of different tools. Um, so if, if you contrast the experience of, Oh, I've got to log in twice with my mortgage and I, I, I don't actually have any validation and my, and my data is all over the place. What's it like when you are connected? What is my, how, how, how does it feel to have a better handle on my financial health? It's a great question. I think the, the connection feel, should feel seamless to you, right? When it doesn't work, it's a nuance or not a nuance. I'm sorry. It's an annoyance, not a nuance. Um, it's an annoyance. Um, there are certainly situations where that feels like an emergency, but when we, when you do it right and when the connection is stable and seamless, it should, it should, you're not putting in your username and password. You're not putting, you're not giving that, um, that sensitive information. And then you should be able to see your data is pulled in. It's cleansed. You can make sense of it. It's very user-friendly. The insights that you receive within your experience are personalized to you. They're not generic insights and they're actionable so we, we identify that you have a subscription you had no idea about. I've been paying $6.99 to Microsoft for two years. Actually, I think three now. 
And I didn't realize that until I got this subscription notification that I'd been paying this and I'm not using it. You know, there's things like that. And then our partners can give the ability for you to take action in the experience as well. Um, it might be that you're creating a plan for your spending and we're able to see the income that's coming in and to tell you what your recurring transactions or your recurring expenses are from the history that we see. We can see upcoming bills and you can, you know, you can plan for those expenses and then we can help you stay on a budget. So it's things like that, that once you've given access to that, to that data, it feels very seamless to do it. And then the experience is very guided and very personalized to you. Is, is there a cost associated to, to the platform for, for someone who's getting those benefits? So we, we partner with businesses, financial institutions, and fintech organizations. And um, we, don't charge, um, we don't charge a fee to the end user. And I, you know, I don't even know of any use cases where, where we have clients, uh, credit unions or financial institutions that are charging for that service. David, do you? Yeah, so I know we definitely have some. So I think on our bank and credit union, the larger an organization is, the more likely that the tools that we build and provide just come as a part of a benefit of their services to their organization. But as we look at some of the smaller fintechs, there are some that are, are kind of creating niche categories where they're building a ton of value on financial management or they're building a ton of value on, on a new bill payment proposition. And so they're charging fees on the value they're creating. And But open finance is just part of the whole experience. They're not charging for the connections themselves. So it's uh, say they're charging for it, but they're not charging for us. They're charging for everything they're building. You do certainly see uh, challenger banks and digital banks are starting to really differentiate on the experience. And I've certainly seen where there could be fees for uh, a more integrated or upgraded experience. You get more insights or more budgeting tools if you pay a fee per month. And so we definitely see organizations differentiating on that experience and using this as a value proposition to differentiate between um, dif- different differentiate between their competitors. Yeah, it makes it's a it's an awesome way to compete because it it's better for the end user to have a better user experience. And if you're providing that experience, then they pick your platform. And in your so your most of the people who end up using MX are using it through a partner. Yeah, we, we are a B two B two C company. We do not have a direct to consumer interface. Uh, so anytime someone is experiencing MX, it's always through one of our clients or one through one of our partners' clients. So uh, yeah, that's that's the only way we go to market right now. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about open finance. So the the can you help us define it a little bit and then talk about what it's doing in the real world right now. I'd say open finance goes back to some of the initial things I said. It is about giving consumers the right and the secure ability to access and act on their financial data. That is the core of open finance. Um, I think if you look abroad to to the EU and UK and even Asia and Australia, there's a regulation that says you've got to do this thing called open banking. And in many cases, it's limited to just the transactional account, just your in, in the UK, it's your current account. Um, in the US, because we don't have regulation, it's been fully market driven. And we've had the benefit of not being limited to just a specific account. So as open finance is expanding, it's become your deposit accounts, your CDs, your savings accounts, your money market accounts, your investment accounts, your IRAs, your 401ks, your mortgages, your auto loans. Um, I know when I connect my accounts through one of our MX clients, I have my Ford, my Ford loan connected. I have my mortgage connected. I have my savings account connected. I have my checking account connected. I've got a couple of credit cards connected. Like it's all available 
Um, not all via API, but it's all there because we've been living in a world where there's been no restrictions or mandates on a small sliver. And so people created value at every layer of a financial life. I think one of the nuances um, that I love explaining is the difference between open finance and open banking because the terms are used interchangeably quite a bit. And it's exactly what David was just saying, that open finance is so much broader than open banking, which is very important. But it's also about all of those other accounts that you have. It's about your investment accounts and your loans as well. Yeah. And people, I think this is intuitive after the fact, after you introduce a U.S. consumer who's not used to this. It's like, well, of course I should have an open finance approach and my accounts should be you know, mine and I should control the information and things like that. Contrasted with other parts of the world where it was already mandated, do you think that 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 people when they get exposed to this, they just they love it? They're like, this is why weren't we doing this sooner? And that's driving the adoption. I think it's generational. Um, I think the idea that I'm sharing my data is much much more free the younger you are, uh, the older you are, and I would dare say the more you have at risk. If you've got a well established financial life. You've got potentially millions of dollars accrued over 30 or 40 years. You may be a little less likely to share your banking data. You might think someone has a little more of a vested interest in doing something where the younger you are, again, you're sharing all your data anyway, typically on social media, and you probably don't have much to lose, right? That's a, So there, there's some, <laughs> just some clear demographic uh, influences in, in who is most open to it. Sorry, I was just going to say, we see it in um, the trends that, that we are watching as well. Uh, to David's point, uh, I, the research that we've done recently said that Gen Z uh, and millennial are in the high 80s who view or manage their financial accounts via their mobile app and have multiple accounts. Uh, Gen X is 71%, but then when you get to baby boomers, it's 39%. So you see it in the trends of usage of, of digital banking and digital finances as well. It's funny because we've I can see it on Twitter where people are sharing their trades and then you know how their portfolio is doing and it's like if I showed that to my grandparents they wouldn't know what Twitter was but they also would never talk about money that way and so do you think that there's a benefit that this new generation that believes in open finance and and having this different approach are they getting more financial wellness because of it is it really working I don't know about that uh, I do know that, you know, they're more likely to um, to work with cryptocurrency as an example. Um, what I think what you see is the comfort sharing, which is, a, you know, kind of to go back to open finance, which is why it's so important that you do it right, because maybe a baby boomer cares so much about security. And it's not that, you know, a millennial or Gen X or Gen Z doesn't, but it might not be as top of mind. And so it's so important to us that we're creating these data sharing experiences or the the infrastructure that is secure. Uh, so I don't know if it's, um, you know, about wellness per se, but um, I definitely think that um, it's from a, from a security perspective, you see a difference. Well, I think there's also a subtlety here and it goes some along generational lines, but sometimes at NMX, we talk about financial literacy versus financial advocacy. 20, I would say even five to 10 years ago, financial literacy was what every bank and every credit union was, was told to do, whether it was for their Community Reinvestment Act requirements or it's because it was the good of their community. But they were teaching people how to balance a checkbook, how to, how to understand their debt, how to understand their income, and giving them tools to go do it. 
And MX has those personal financial management tools off the shelf and SaaS offerings. Like we can, we have those in thousands of banks in the country, but we see that there are certain person, personality types that, that leverage PFM tools. They're typically a little more type A, a little more organized. They want to know where everything is going. And this is where I think the younger generation gets to benefit because in their freeness to share their data, they're going to get the benefit of, of all the AI and machine learning that's coming out that's based on sound practice and sound financial literacy. So they'll get the advocacy of, like, I don't want to say automated finances yet, but they're going to, but as we get closer to that, they're going to be able to do, do more confidently trusting that banks and credit unions and fintechs have the intelligence built into their systems and the knowledge of them as a user to accomplish probably semi-autonomous finance for them. Uh, so that's where I think they get to benefit in the long run. I think we also see they have on average so many more accounts too. Oh yeah. So they're they're so much more willing to try something out. Like you see a lot of trial happening with challenger banks as an example, and they'll put money in five or six different accounts, which is why uh, winning on the experience is so important too. You have to have a differentiator because you've got to you have to have something that's going to make them stick since they are so willing to try other experiences. That's very familiar. I'm one of those type A people who loves to be organized, but I have 15 bank accounts because, well, this one has this thing and I, the other one doesn't have that. And I don't have a unified experience, but I'm very, uh, very different than my grandparents who had their community bank. That was the one place they physically went in person to do their banking. And David, something you were, you were talking about was um, how this can kind of start to get automated um, where you're combining the tools and the education and then almost like a recommendation of where, you know, things you missed or things that you should have done because you're so distracted and all over the place. Can you talk a little bit about where that's at and where it's going with banking? Like, is if I've got money in different accounts and I can connect them all, am I going to get, what, better recommendations on things that I, I should be doing? Yes. Uh, I think Crystal's example is one small like, kind of glimpse into what's happening. The recognition of a subscription that she didn't know about surfaced by by an analysis of her account enabled her to save seven dollars a month, six ninety nine a month. So that's like that's just a sliver of what we're what we're building right now. But when we look to the future, or actually when we look to the the current world, I, I was an Ally Bank customer for a while, and they had the ability to do automated savings based on um, your account activity. So based on your running monthly balances, they would say, now's a good time to save, move it to your high yield savings account. Uh, we are seeing a lot of that automation and we're actually working on a lot of that automation um, in our experiences. So we, you know, we can start to predict income events. We see those historical expenses. Um, we can help you create um, budgets around categories and then start to predict that. And it learns your behavior over time and it can recommend a budget and um, can notify you if you're nearing the top of that budget um, and reward you when when you're um, when you've stayed within budget. But the thing that we see that behavior that that creates is opportunities to save, and then you have the opportunity to say, okay, well we have we've noticed we've noticed that we have the savings event. You have X dollars extra. We know that it's not allocated anywhere else. Then you can start to see that automated savings behavior, and then it goes back to the financial strength that we were talking about. Planning ahead is actually the leading indicator of financial strength. So knowing that and knowing that we can help automate planning ahead is is one of the things that really um, drives us. And I think from a competitive perspective, you talked about like, how do I make the better choice? 
I'm a yield chaser. Like I have a savings pot that I, and I chase yield from account to account. Um, mm-hmm. Andrew, I think based on what you described, you may be as well. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> but it gets really easy to move money around. And there are services, I think I want to say NerdWallet and maybe some others that are monitoring interest rates across the board. And so if you start to integrate your accounts and your savings, like they're going to be notifying you about, hey, there's an opportunity to save here. Click here to open your account, right? That's that is a reality of a saver. And the the reason why I don't move my money around is because of bad user experience. It's hard for me to do that, and that's like the competitive mode of my bank is that like we're going to make your life hard to get your money out of here, so you you don't go pick up a little extra yield somewhere else. But with open finance, where it's all about user experience. Financial well-being becomes a lot easier to achieve. There's a lot less friction in that ecosystem. So if you guys just sit around all day and think of how can I remove more barriers to this and you're like, you know, you get to take what you see in your own banks and build it in. Is that kind of what the the cultures over at MX is like? Distinctly some of it for sure. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, though, is that, you know, we have to acknowledge that our clients are banks and credit unions and financial institutions who having those dollars on deposit is really important to them. And so enabling an easier experience to move money between that's on us to, to share what the value is and to ensure that our clients understand the value of open finance and having consumer permissioned data and why it why it actually benefits their business, especially if you're making it easier for consumers in some ways, easier for them to switch. Well, you you have to educate that group, the banks. I imagine the, the, the people who are actually your direct customers, they're traditionally probably a conservative group, I imagine, they're banks. So, um, you know, if, I'd love to hear more about how you're helping to educate all them about why this is a better way for them to attract customers and get those deposits that's so critical to their bottom line. So I was going to say, it's it's interesting to think about that because one of the benefits of open finance, and this is what I think President Biden last year actually called out, is that he said, for competitiveness, the CFPB needs to issue this rule faster. Because when you can move your money faster, it incents banks to become more competitive. And that's not just about interest rates. Interest rates are a part of competition, but the reality is neobanks and challenger banks and fintechs are finding these very specific niches to serve specific needs in better ways that banks can't. And they, or, and they, or they haven't chosen to over the past 50 years or 60 years, 100 years in some cases. And so the challenge, is, the challenge we often ask banks is, what, is, what are you best at? Who is your actual customer? Who are you targeting? And a lot of times banks struggle to identify their target market. It might be their local community, uh, but then we say, who in your local community? Is it small businesses? If so, what type of small businesses? Who do you, who are you excelling at serving so you can grow that business significantly? And, and that's there's a challenge for competitiveness that makes banks really reassess strategy deeply that's balanced with making sure the experience is high quality along with it. Um, so that's, I think, open finance is bringing a different level of engagement to the financial institutions around the country. It also gives insight into that, though. You know, if you can't answer that question, um, you know, consumers are sharing their data. Um, we have to just embrace it. But do you know who they're sharing it with, what institutions they're sharing it with? And, you know, that's one of the things that we give visibility into is where you can see where that data is being shared. 
And so, you know, it helps you with your roadmap too. It helps you to understand who your biggest competitor is and, you know, what are they offering that you aren't? And so, as David said, it creates this um, opportunity for competition because it gives you the insight into where your consumers are actually spending their time. Yeah. Who they're sharing their data with. Right. So the consumers are getting all the benefits you talked about, about connectivity and better recommendations and better user experience. That some of the information that they're sharing as part of that is benefiting the banks too, because now they can target them or they they can learn from them and narrow in on how that that um, that financial institution competes. Is that the idea for them? Yeah, and I would say the other piece of this. I worked for a credit union for almost a decade before uh, moving into fintech. But when you look at the the biggest cost to to a financial organization, financial institution, one of those is something called the provision for loan loss, and and that's it's what you what a bank has to set aside in capital to account for future loan losses, and the lower your delinquency rates are, which means the the, the more the more frequent payments you're getting made by your consumers, the more the more on time your your customers are paying, the lower that reserve goes. And so the support of financial wellness and this and bringing in that data and understanding the financial position allows you to potentially be more proactive, understand where the money is going and be a more holistic counsel so that the improvement of the financial life of your user creates better repayment, lowers other costs that are on the balance sheet that you may not really have a, you may not be able to draw a direct line too quickly, but over time builds the business in a, in a much more stable way. Right. So you've got you've got aligned interest between the financial institution and their users where we want these to be healthy financial users because now I can reduce my provision for loan loss and the banks can make and we're all rising up together by not pitting each other against each other. Not like how low of an interest rate can I pay and how much interest rate can I milk without being loyal to this institution and jumping around. We work together. We can all we can reduce costs everywhere. And everybody can actually save better. That's right. Well, and your revenue streams shift, right? We don't, we don't, we're not charging for overdraft. So your revenue and, you know, we're not, you know, charging a fee for bill pay anymore. And so it's, you have to shift your revenue stream. And when someone is planning ahead, they're more likely to engage in their mobile or online banking experience. They're having, they have savings accounts. They're doing automated savings or setting savings goals. They're engaging with your brand more often. And so there are all these other benefits to it as well. As you move up this, if you, you know, think about it as a financial wellness continuum, as you move up that continuum, you become a more engaged consumer as well. Wow. Yes. And, and you do things like buy a house, you know, or Right. And you can reborrow because your credit score is better. So you can reborrow and you're engaging in that. Right. All right. I get it. <laughs> you guys open my eyes. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yes. you. If I can get it, everybody, I think our listeners will get it too. Um, I'm on your website. There's all these different products on here. Uh, data aggregation, account verification. Can you pick one or two of these other these other things that you're doing on the back end that are enhancing data and there's APIs involved and just talk a little bit about some of these other ways that um, your customers take advantage of MX. Sure. So I'll start with some of the data, just the data enhancement. Well, actually, I'll start with the way we, the way we deliver our services. Um, a lot of what Crystal talked about can be delivered in a fully web-based widget. So it's a, a really quick drag and drop script. You authenticate the user, drop them in, and all of a sudden their data is populated in a, in a beautiful user interface. Um, that's kind of the easiest way to deploy our services, but everything we've done there has also been enabled via API. 
And so the active aggregation, so allowing a user to put in their username and password, aggregate the account, collect the accounts and transactions and the account numbers, running numbers is also all enabled via API. Um, so that means that whether you want to be fully white labeled with our experience or you want to build your own on top of MX products and, products and services, you can do that. But I think what you're, what you're getting at when you're asked about the data is like, when we get transactions in, one thing that sets us apart from every other aggregator is the quality of our data enhancement. Because for the past 10 years, we've been assessing transactions. And because we have those personal financial management experiences, we know when users are saying, this is actually not, this BP transaction, this is not a bookstore, this is gas. And so we get to feed that act, that user's action of changing the category to gas. And now we get to take that string of BP and fill it into our machine learning and say, okay, how do we account for this in the next the next time this comes through? Um, and so because we've been doing both manual manual algorithms and assessments as well as machine learning for the past decade uh, we are years ahead of most of our competitors in that world um, because any we've talked to a few companies who come in and say oh yeah we're really we've got great data enhancement don't worry we spent a couple million dollars and built some great data science around it uh, and when we compared our services uh, mx often comes out ahead because a machine can't understand the random characters that come at the end of a transaction string. It takes a human eye to pick out, oh, that's a BP gas charge, not a subway that has BP and some of that messy text at the end. Um, and so there's a lot of things that the human eye can read and catch faster than a machine learning algorithm reading through millions or billions of transactions. And so when you combine the manual with the machine, it actually creates much higher levels of outcomes for our clients and for the data that we're putting it, putting out. Um, yeah. But but ultimately, any transaction that comes inside of MX doesn't leave unenhanced. So you can't just do – we, we don't just pull the data out of the bank and then present it. It comes into MX and goes out in a much more usable way. So that's one of the core core values we offer. Yep, that's a very familiar. That's we we have we do this in the financial statement world. We're using machine learning that we train with a human and a machine, and you get better data quality results um, as well. Um, and so these the the folks that the financial institutions that are getting the benefit of that enhanced data, they would have to have their own department basically to to enhance transaction data if they weren't working with you. That's something they have to build from scratch at home, I imagine. Yep. They build it from scratch at home or they try to buy it from someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, we have a couple competitors in the market. It's, uh, it's known, but we, we still think we have a pretty solid lead. Yes, I think you do too. Yeah, uh, so there, uh, outside of the, the, the largest banks that have an entire 100-person IT department, they can say, hey, we need this done. Or folks that, you know, everybody else is going to get, the, they're not going to be able to grow it in their in-home. And so they get the banks get the benefit of what starting ten years further ahead than they would be if they try to do it on their own. We've even had some big banks attempt to go head to head with us, and have ended up buying our service instead. So it's uh, I I would love to say that big banks could easily replicate it with a, a team of thousands of engineers, but it's processing millions of transactions and having the history of human review combined with machine learning. The human review takes time, and I, you, you, if you if you're doing it, you know it. Um, you can't just a machine can't do everything there. Um, maybe someday, but that's that's definitely not today. Yeah. Well, as David said, that's why us going to market in different ways, depending on what type of organization we're working with. Are we working with an organization that has a hundred person IT department that wants to develop them develop it themselves? 
um, meaning they want to develop the experience. Well, that's why we have APIs and SDKs so that we can do that. And then we have those that don't want to or don't have the resources to do so. Then they can, you know, use our widgets. Yes, they they. I love the idea of an API because if the company wants to do it their own way and build and they have their own secret sauce, they can. But if they want to skip ahead and rely on your approach, they don't have to. And that gives tons of flexibility and options to the company that wants to implement. Yeah, and even our data enhancement is available as a service, so you can buy. You can feed transactions into MX from your ecosystem and get them out cleansed. You don't have to have the whole suite of services. So we have very granular uh, APIs and we have much broader APIs. Right. Yeah. So you can apply the model onto their data or you can take the data and apply it and and give out the um, output of the the model. That's right. And we can process in batch or via API. Like it really, we have the ability to facilitate many, many different models of delivery. Yeah. So you're telling your secrets of how this is all done, but I know from experience that if even if they knew we should hire some analysts, we should have a, your competitors did, you wouldn't be able to recreate it because how it's set up and, and built is it's impossible to start from scratch and, and get the same results because it's all in how you set the data up and the experience and the backwards looking data. And it's it's really a tough thing to pull off. Yeah, one thing that's a unique value that we provide that I don't know that anyone else is doing it at, at, at any level of scale is that we actually, as part of our enhancement, is adding logos to the merchant. And so if you think about wow. that act and the and the work that takes, um, that's not an easy replication um, no. to validate who the merchant is, that that's their actual logo. Like that, that is something that we've spent hours and hours over the past decade doing um, because the reality is when a user looks at their screen and sees the McDonald's golden arches, they see that and process that's my McDonald's faster than reading the word McDonald's. You're talking to a guy who's looked for a logo API and there's <laughs> <laughs> um, probably not very many of us out there, but I totally understand the value because we, I never found a good one. And there's a big, in my space where we deal with uh, publicly traded security stocks and things like that, logos are a little easier to come by, but the so many companies have logos that aren't, in that market. So you imagine how many new companies come out every year and how many go out of business. Just that one piece of your of your business is really hard to to recreate, but then also super meaningful for consumers. Like you said, it, uh, there's a big difference between the arches and the word McDonald's. Yeah. And you don't, you get a data science value out of the word McDonald's. You get mm-hmm. a user experience value out of the, out of the logo. Um, yeah. So two very different like deliveries of value. That, that's a beautiful thing. So we've already started talking about this a little bit, where this is all going. I mean, open finance seems like it's spreading. More banks are doing this. I don't think it's going to be too long before, you know, my personal finances are very much enhanced with machine learning and AI and suggestions and all this stuff. Like, is where's the future of this industry and, and consumer experiences? Like in 10 years, what is my financial well-being going to look like? How, how do you see this evolving? I think the expectations about where you get this experience, where you go to get this information and how you transact changes significantly. One of my favorite use cases is, let's say I'm going to go buy a very expensive bike uh, that I um, keep at my home And instead of going to my bank and applying for a loan and waiting a couple of days to get the funds and then go buy this bike, I'm actually offered 
buy now, pay later in the checkout experience, or I'm offered a loan in the middle of the checkout experience, and I can check out just like that. And all of a sudden, my Peloton becomes a financial services provider in my mind. And so that's you know, one, of the, one of the ways that the industry is evolving is these embeddable finances where they're going to show up in every aspect of your life. And it isn't going to be just your bank or credit union or your challenger bank where you go to get these services. Hmm. Wow. So uh, I take that and I take I, almost a step further because I think, and, and this is where it's almost anti-capitalist in some ways, but it's what happens when you're going to buy that bike, but it actually tells you, hey, if you do this, it's going to drop your net worth by 5%. It's going to increase your monthly outputs by 50 bucks. And you're going to, you may not make your next month's mortgage payment as a result. Are you sure you want to do that? So when we talk about literacy versus advocacy, if you aren't sure where you are, we should have technology at the checkout that helps you know where you are and what you can do. And that's where like, I would love to see the world get to that point where we have companies advocating for people spending their money wisely. Um, Not that a Peloton purchase would be a bad one, but maybe no. not right that, at that point, right? But can you um, imagine the, the loyalty that that would drive? Mm. You know, if you're, you're in the middle of a purchase experience and company this company said, the company says, you know, we're all about health and wellness. And so we just want to make sure that you think about it in this way. I mean, they have my business for life. And so those <laughs> are the sort of, I love that example, David, because I think that that's the way we have to think about this, that we are very much advocating for the consumer. Well, I think let's think about mortgages. Like if I'm connected, I've got all my accounts synced, I should be able to push a button and all of that data should flow into a mortgage application. And I shouldn't have to wade through page after page and document after document to, to sign a mortgage. This should be a, a seven-day process at most, not a 30 to 45-day process if I'm connected. Yeah. And, and the mortgage company can actually make a better decision in, from their angle too, because they've got deeper information about you. Your example of the Peloton is great because they just switched to offering a subscription model where you don't even, you know, you can, you can subscribe to the bike instead. And, you know, because maybe you don't want to lay out all the cash and everything you're talking about is very relatable. I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, I can't afford this, but should I, and I don't have the information in front of me to make a good decision because it's spread. It's, it's so complicated, you know, like it, I need a model that could tell me, well, this affects my mortgage this way and it affects my car that way. And, you know, and, and maybe I'm not spending enough, you know, because I'm nervous and I, I actually could be happier with my bike right now instead of waiting, but I'm kind of guessing, you know, on a lot of my decisions and I'm super, uh, anal even to the point of being on top of finances. So this is my job, you know, working in, in fintech. So I, I see these trends of uh, as you're nailing it. This is where I would like my personal life to be where I know, yeah, feel free, buy dinner right now. No big deal. Go out. That's fine. Or did you think about financing this purchase? You don't have to put all the cash outlays right now. Here, it's going to cost you this much interest and this makes sense for you because of this or maybe not, but at least I have the option. Whereas before it's really just what's in my checking account. So I love the well, idea it, that it's going to pervade. Well, and it's to bring it full circle. That's what open finance enables. I mean, I almost think of it like as a keychain or a wallet with all of my data in it, right? Like that's mine. 
that's my activity. Those are my transactions. And if I can take that everywhere I go, everywhere I transact, and it can enable what you've just described, that's what open finance does when it is, you know, fully adopted in the U.S. Yeah, I love it. I didn't know anything about this when we started our conversation. <laughs> I see the value for everybody, but mostly for myself. I'm like, I want this future. And it sounds like MX is making it happen. So uh, if you want to check it out, it's MX.com. Couldn't be an easier website, but thank you so much, Crystal and David. I, I learned a lot and I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank yeah, it's great, Andrew. It. Yeah, thank you.